Hello, this is Jason Gewertz, editor and publisher of Sports Travel, and welcome to another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders in the sports event industry on trends and topics of interest to event organizers, destinations, and sports industry suppliers. Our guest today is Glenn Mary, the CEO of the newly created Move United, an organization that came about from the recent merger of Disabled Sports USA and Adaptive Sports USA. Those organizations had each been around for decades, serving similar but different purposes and organizing events in adaptive sports. We'll get into detail with Glenn about the possibilities that have emerged from this new union and how cities can position themselves for what should be an increase in the number of events organized in the future. But before we begin, this podcast is being sponsored by the Teams Conference and Expo, the world's largest gathering of sports event organizers and the destinations and suppliers that serve the sports event industry. Teams 20 will be held at the George R. Brown Convention Center in Houston, Texas, October 19th through the 22nd, 2020. This year's conference will once again feature the co-location of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee's SportsLink and NGB Best Practices Seminars, as well as the annual symposium of the National Congress of State Games. For more details on everything we have planned at Teams, please visit teamsconference.com. And now on to the conversation. If the name Glenn Mary sounds familiar to you, it may be from his longtime stint as the CEO of U.S. Rowing, the national governing body for the Olympic and Paralympic sport of rowing in the United States. Mary spent 12 years in that role, leading the organization to new heights both on the water and off in terms of membership increases and event participation. In August 2018, he was named Executive Director of Disabled Sports USA, a Maryland-based nonprofit that since 1967 has been helping support organizations that offer sports and recreation to disabled athletes across the country. While that organization had been around for decades, so had Adaptive Sports USA, a separate group based in Colorado that was founded in 1956. That organization, led by Susan Rossi, also served adaptive sports athletes and organized its own competitions, including a large event that rotates to different host cities called the Junior Nationals. Recently, the sides had been discussing a merger, and in May, they announced the formation of a new combined entity rebranded as Move United, of which Mary now serves as executive director, with Rossi taking on a role of director of competition. While adaptive sports have come a long way in recent years, Mary knows that there is tremendous opportunity ahead. In just eight years, Los Angeles will host the Paralympic Summer Games, offering an unprecedented amount of exposure to the types of sports that Move United, a group recognized by the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, is now responsible for organizing. In this conversation, we talk with Mary about how two separate and sometimes competing groups were able to execute a successful merger, uh, the efforts behind the rebrand and the completely new name plans for more competitive events in more cities around the country, including a new professional wheelchair football league, and the opportunities ahead before the games in Los Angeles in 2028. The discussion also goes into what cities and venues can do to tap into the network of organizations that already serve adaptive sports athletes in their communities. It's a great discussion, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. Glenn Mary, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. Oh, my pleasure. It's really good to speak with you today, Justin. Always good to chat with you as well. I think uh, there's a lot of ground that I'd like to cover with you, but I think we'll start with the big news out of the world of disabled and adaptive sports of just the other week, which is the merger of your former group, Disabled Sports USA, and a similar but separate group called Adaptive Sports USA, both of which have been around for decades. But for those not familiar, what's the backstory on these two groups and how the talks of a merger even began? 
Yeah, it's a really exciting time for adaptive sports in the United States. And, you know, our two organizations, um, Adaptive Sport USA predates us by about 10 years, but we have very similar trajectories and similar missions, although across different sports, in bringing sport and opportunity to all people and to create an inclusive environment where you can engage people through sport and really enable people to kind of change their trajectory by realizing all the things you can accomplish using sport as that tool. But Adaptive Sport USA began with a group of Korean War veterans and Disabled Sport USA started about eight years later with a group of uh, Vietnam veterans. And so both groups started kind of with this military alumni and quickly became much more youth and adult programming. And the conversations really came about because we both sit at the same multi-sport organization council with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. So mm-hmm. um, Susan and I got to know each other, and there are a lot of commonalities and, and things. And Susan is a reference to Susan Rossi. who Yes, Susan Rossi and I had the opportunity through several conversations to talk about some shared uh, obstacles that we we're trying to overcome as organizations and trying to sort through uh, some of the just business of, of doing sport, especially around youth and, and vulnerable populations in these days, as it related to sport protection and insurance. And then it kind of became a conversation about, well, both our organizations, what benefits could we have if we had some type of formal partnership? And then um, the conversation continued to grow as we looked at the power of our chapters uh, coming together and what synergies could be effectuated if the two merged as one organization. So that's where we ended up as of the beginning of May. Was there previously a lot of overlap between your two organizations or did you tend to have different members? That's an excellent question. The Our chapter network's a little bit larger. We're about 150 members across the United States. Their organization is a little bit smaller in the 70 number. And we overlapped only by about 20 to 30. So this merger will bring 41 new uh, members into the influx and um, will bring us up close to 200. Um, we have some other growth going on that will push us past 225 by the end of the summer. I guess in the big picture, Glenn, what does this merger allow you to do now that maybe you weren't able to accomplish as two separate entities? Yeah, I think as with many uh, mergers, there's an efficiency that comes to bear uh, by bringing groups together where the back of the house um, can come together and we can really focus on the programming aspects of what each of our specialties are. So while a lot of our network focuses on um, recreation sport and outdoor sport and in things besides sport, things that include things like uh, yoga and hiking, their network has been more focused around summer sports and especially competition um, when it pertains to youth, some adults, but a really strong uh, focal point around track and field, archery, swimming amongst you know, probably another five or six uh, summer uh, related sports. So bringing them together, uh, what we now do is we it brings together this continuity or this spectrum between 
recreation kind of entry level of getting people just involved in an active lifestyle and gives them an opportunity to participate and grow uh, through what you would naturally expect with competition. And our goal, our, our vision, I think, is to grow out those opportunities and bring on more partners to create more competition opportunities, whether they're inclusive or adaptive only, and think beyond just the eight sports that we have in that uh, arena right now. Disabled Sport USA had a reputation of being very focused around winter sport. And um, we have the Hartford Ski Spectacular, which has been a fantastic event over the last three decades, um, but really opens up our ability to program year round and give people that competitive opportunity, whether they're youth or adults across the board. It also allows us to reach our vision for where we want to be by the 2028 games. And that's to have a very robust, strong, and saturated network throughout the United States. Over the last 18 months, we've moved from about 53% of the population in America being able to drive to one of our chapters for programming. This year will be mid-60th percentile. And our goal by 2028 is for 90% of the U.S. population to be within a drive of one of our adaptive community-based sports organizations, because we think that's going to be an important component um, to responding to the increased level of awareness and um, attention that Paralympics will bring when they return to Los Angeles in 2028. Yeah. So you've touched on a a couple of things that I want to ask you about. I do want to ask you about the Paralympics coming up, but we'll get to that in a moment. And I also want to ask you about some of your events that you alluded to. But before we get there, tell me about the, the branding. Your new name is Move United. And one of the things that's interesting to me is you don't see the word disabled, you don't see the word adaptive, which were in both organizations' names previously. So let me start there, because I think, Glenn, there may be some people who are in the sports event industry who are wondering, what is the preferred terminology for your athletes? Is there a preferred terminology? And uh, talk to me a little bit about how you arrived at, at this new name, which I do think is very interesting. Yeah, I think um, you've hit on one of the reasons that before we even realized that this merger would come together, um, we started thinking about who we were as an organization, as Disabled Sports USA. And in our 53-year history, we'd never done an official audit of our brand and and brought in people who were experts in, in that area. So about six months ago, a little over six months ago, we found a third a party partner uh, in SuperUnion, one of the largest global brand agencies in the world, um, to come on board and to kind of help us through that process. And the terminology adaptive, I think, has begun to replace disabled. Disabled is still very highly used, and there are segments of the population that have very strong identity with the term disabled or disability. But there's also a group of people that find that not to be how they want to describe themselves. And so what we tried to do in our branding is really think about changing from a descriptive name to something that was more aspirational and something that would allow us to uh, ring the bell for a clear call to action to get people engaged. And by people, I don't just mean people with disabilities in the community that we serve, but I mean our allies and stakeholders out in the public community to raise awareness that there is this ability that people in sports have, and it's not thwarted or dulled uh, whether they have a disability or not. 
And so to be able to open that up and to be able to have a name that represents that type of energy and dynamic and kind of call to arms was exactly what we were looking for. And so Move United came as a result of a lot of research and um, a lot of interviews and a, and a lot of discussions with many stakeholders um, about who they saw us as and what they saw our potential as a movement. And it was a very long process. And yeah, how, uh, how long of a process was it, Glenn? It was there were six stages to it, and it, it started back in November of last year. But it's very interesting when you have we've had twelve names during our lifetime, and Disabled Sports USA uh, is the most recent, but it wasn't the only one. We've been called inconvenienced, and we've been called handicapped, and I think in today's world you wouldn't use either of those terms. Um, and so the term disabled, while it's still used. It's approaching that same era that handicap has, where it maybe is not as functional as we would like. And so coming through these stages and and processes around researching and and understanding and surveying our members and stakeholders and community, but then taking that to think about the territory that we want to occupy and the messaging that we want to impart about the strength of sport and its ability to change lives, and that um, we're bringing together uh, the full spectrum of sport for people with disabilities, whether it's that recreational element or the competitive element, or almost up to that 1% element that's trying to uh, make the Paralympic team. So we're creating this movement, uniting the group together. And as we move through more than four dozen names and came down to the final few finalists, it was really interesting that Move United was amongst them. I don't think any of us started the process thinking, ah, we'll be Move United. But as it came to be, we really loved the way it came together and the way it really personified a lot of the actions that we're looking to take and that we've already taken around our vision 2028. Yeah. I imagine the word inconvenienced wasn't one of your four finalist names. No. And you know, what's very interesting about a name. And if you have children, you know, this already uh, trying to find the name with a blank slate is, um, a little bit easier. So naming your child, you kind of don't know who your child is. But if you were to take your child at, say, age 12 and try to redefine them and give them a new name, it'd be very hard because that name, you know, John or Sue or whatever the name is, has that meaning to you. So um, we had some names that were completely made up and some that were real words but came together in strange ways. And it's a very disturbing process um, but kind of fun to do. And it really tested our ability to think through uh, who we wanted to be seen as and how important a name is. Before I ask you about some of your events, you touched earlier on the uh, veteran community. Give me an idea of how large a, a part of the overall population we're talking about here when when we're looking at the types of services that your organization provides uh, in the sports space. How how big of a percentage is that veteran community? And is that something that has been growing in recent years? Yeah. Um, you know, we started our warfighter sports program, which is now Move United Warfighter, back in 2003. And since that time, we've served more than 15,000 uh, of the most severely injured and wounded uh, warfighters and their families. Um, last year, we will have served 2,000 uh, warfighters and their families. And I think it's an important thing to note that we serve not just the athlete, but the people that they bring with them. And that sports is that very inclusive environment. So you want family members there. But, you know, it's 
within our segment of 100,000 individuals that we're serving, 2,000 may seem like a small number, but in the venue of wounded and injured uh, warfighters, we are the largest group providing sports services and programming around that. So it's a very interesting, compelling group. Um, here are people that were on one trajectory through life, typically very active, typically very athletic. And for whatever obstacle they came across or whatever, however they were injured or wounded, all of a sudden there's a detour and a deviation in that. And for many of them, the mental and the physical components are very interwoven. So we see uh, the outcomes of the service we do with the warfighter community to be very important to our identity, and it's very important um, to our future plans. So while we've served 15,000 during very active conflict periods during our time with the Iraq and, Af- and, and war in Afghanistan, we're committed to serving another 10,000 warfighters and their family between now and 2028. And that'll come about hopefully not through new conflicts, but that there are so many that have come back through uh, the rehab hospitals at places like Walter Reed and and Bamsey down in San Antonio that we may not have had a chance to see as they first came through those rehab units and they're back out in their communities. And that's really the power of that 90 percentile being within close distance is that we have warfighters that are home that may not be active, um, that may have been injured four, five, six years ago, that we want to reach out, find them, and bring them back into an active lifestyle. Let me transition a little bit to the events world, because your organization serves many purposes, one of which obviously is providing a, a recreational outlet or a sports outlet for people. And I realize that doesn't always necessarily manifest itself in a competition or in an event necessarily. But you mentioned your ski event that Disabled Sports USA has put on for years. I know Adaptive Sports USA organizes an event called the Junior Nationals, which some of our listeners may be familiar with because it does rotate around. Uh, for starters, what happens? happens to that event, will that continue in its previous form? We're expecting to do more than continue. We're looking to grow the community interest in uh, adaptive sport competition and junior national championships uh, will continue to grow. And we're looking at how we can bring in new uh, partnerships to help make that a larger and more robust event. In addition to, there's about two dozen uh, summer events. Some are very grassroots with a few dozen participants, and there's others that are uh, very sophisticated. Um, so, you know, I think there's a there's an opportunity here to take a part of our industry that has been going along with a pretty nice incremental growth year on year, but to really put it in the in the spotlight and to engage people in a new way. But Junior Nationals rotates around the country. We'll be looking uh, to put it out to bid for 2022 and 23. We try to do two-year uh, cycles on the bid city. And um, Susan Rossi, who will come over from Adaptive Sport USA to, to Move United, will be heading up the new competition division within our organization and will be in charge of that process. You touched on some of these other events, Glenn, but for those that are not familiar, how are competitions typically organized? Are these local groups and communities that maybe were already working with athletes in this space that happened to do an event and your organization would just support them? What's what's the nature of the, I guess, the relationship of of some of these events and how they're typically structured? 
Yeah, I think as in most uh, community-based sports, it kind of runs the gamut. We have some that have robust year-round programming and the competition is run by a chapter that has year-round programming. A good example of that might be the uh, Great Lakes uh, Adaptive Sports Organization up in Chicago. Um, We have some others that are maybe have less year-round programming and a very functional volunteer group that bring that come together for a series of events or a specific major event, uh, tri-state down here in the New Jersey, New York area might be an example of that. But in general, they're more local focused and um, very, very heavily reliant on a strong volunteer population that really drives the programming and um, officiating coaching at those events. And can you envision a scenario where there would be more events, I guess, organized by maybe your organization, things that, that could rotate around? We talked about the junior nationals, but is there a, um, a kind of a platform that you can see moving forward where there might be the potential for more of those types of events? Yeah, I think, look, the the opportunity here, the vision for where we want to take this is that there's greater structure to um, what's already taking place without um, taking away from the local organizing committees or the local uh, community-based chapters, but creating regionally-based uh, championship series and growing the population so that instead of a few hundred, um, we, we're looking at a few thousand people participating regionally, qualifying for nationals, and having that be across age groups. I don't know how long it will take us to get there, um, but you know we're looking at where this takes us between now and 2028 because we know that you know, through the competition series that already exist, something like 71% of that summer Paralympic team has taken part in those competitions over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And on the winter side, uh, you know, we talked about the Hartford Ski Spectacular and Breckenridge. Um, that event, we've had a tremendous connection between our winter programs at what was Disabled Sport USA. 81% of the winter team athletes came through one of the chapters of what was formerly Disabled Sport USA. So there's a very strong yeah. connection and I think a, a huge opportunity to build out these competition series. And while it's been primarily focused on archery, swimming, and track and field. I think there's a lot of new and emerging sports that allow us to do something great and new in a similar way that Paralympics and, and the Olympic program has had to respond to new sports. It wouldn't surprise me to see skateboarding and surfing emerge as new championship opportunities and really open new venues and host locations around the country. What's your advice, if any, for cities out there, whether it's a, a convention bureau or a hotel or you know someone in the travel and hospitality industry that's looking to get in touch with some of the local organizations maybe that are already involved in this space in their community or, or wanting to help pursue some of these events as they develop over time? Um, you know, I, I wonder if some of these, if some communities are fully even in touch with uh, the organizations that may already exist locally that are organizing these events. You know, I think there's a big opportunity here and it it goes well beyond just uh, the sports community that we serve and the hundred thousand people that are involved in our programming. One in five Americans identifies as a person with a disability. And if you're a local organizing committee or a sports commission or a CVB, 
being able to have done your homework and understand what the needs are of those communities. Accessibility is definitely one factor, but it extends beyond ADA compliance and elevators and ramps. It means the convenience of being able to engage your host city or your host location the way that any of your spectators, fans, or participants would expect that restaurants are easy to get to, that transportation is accessible and has regularity to it. It means that there's thought process that goes into things being subtitled when the when they're being uh, shown on screens. That you have uh, interpreters for the deaf. That it's a it's an inclusive process that people are welcoming. And um, but it's also and I'll say this because I think it's something that people too often shy away from. Don't be afraid to ask and engage in that candid conversation with the athletes and the organizers. What are the needs? What are the things we need to worry about if you have wheelchair athletes? Um, ask questions that you're thinking in the back of your head, but may be afraid to ask. It's not difficult. Um, people are very willing, especially athletes, to discuss, hey, you know what? My leg was amputated. This is what it takes to put on my prosthetic. Here are the things I need on a daily basis that make my life easier, um, that you remove those obstacles from participation. Um, so I think the main thing is educating yourself. The second is reaching out and um, listening to what the organizing committee or what the organizing sports groups have to say um, around what their needs are. And then having a very honest conversation. If you don't have the resources, let the organizing organization know that rather than to overpromise and underdeliver. You want it to be the reverse of that. Right. You touched on this earlier, but there's obviously been a lot written over the last couple of weeks about the stoppage of traditional sports here during this pandemic. But what has that shift to being at home been like for the athletes that your organization serves and how have you been addressing that? You know, I'd like to say that it's, it's a huge shift. Um, the reality is a lot of people with disabilities live in isolation every day that they have obstacles to uh, getting into stores or, or getting around or engaging others. So in some ways, um, you know, there hasn't been a lot of difference. I will say one of the things that we've done to shift that has been our chapter network is the strength of our organization. And by the end of the third week of March, all 150 of our chapters had temporarily shuttered um, due to stay in, in at home orders and, the, and that type of thing. So what we did is we shifted as a staff and began working with many of our chapters to construct an online platform called Adapt at Home. And for the first time, really, we brought into the digital age on-demand programming and live programming for people to take part, whether it's strength and conditioning, whether it's yoga, a whole host of other topics. We ended up with 380 offerings in the first six weeks. And they ran from a couple of dozen participants to well over 100 and really, um, it's not as good as the hands-on sport. And we all know that anyone who coaches, anyone who participates in sport, it's good to have that interaction face-to-face. -face. But absent being able to do that, it opens up the opportunity to stay engaged and to be active. And that's the key point uh, for people with disabilities is we're trying to make sure that they're not isolated. We're trying to make sure that we are engaging in the healthful and fitness routine that allows them uh, not to succumb to the statistics for that population, which is a higher risk for diabetes, higher risk for obesity, higher risk for heart and respiratory illness. So 
the more active that we stay as a community, the healthier we are. And this digital age really, it, it was a game changer for us as an organization. It was part of our vision and where we wanted to get in the next 18 months, but it really forced us to hurry up and, and do it. And I'd love to say we did it fantastically. I think there's a lot of room for improvement. As with anything that you hurry up to get done, you look in hindsight and say, oh, here are the things we can do to make it better. But I do have to say, and it's a big shout out to my team at Move United, they've really just picked it up and moved through an area that we didn't have expertise on and quickly learned how to do it and brought it to a mass of people. You know, 20,000 is a lot of people in the first month, and we just continue to grow out this program. The other big shift was our leadership conference, which is the other side of it, right? Where we're instructing mm -hmm. and bringing information to the chapters and the instructors and the therapists out there that work with our community on a daily basis. And both Adaptive Sport USA and Disabled Sport USA had separate conferences, both of which were a couple of hundred each and had both seen great growth in person for conferences over the last few years. But little did we know uh, nine weeks ago when we decided uh, we're going to take this online. Last year, we had like 300. This year, mm -hmm. we went online, did a full five-day uh, schedule, and we ended up with 1,900 people wow. registering and taking part in it. And so we are not going to jettison the in-person, and we'll be uh, returning to Colorado next year in partnership with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee to, to be in person and to share that vital interaction that's needed. But it, what it gave us was a really strong reinforcement that we're headed down the right way with learning management system and creating education and training resources that are online because there are so many places that are less accessible in the United States that have only a small group of people that um, they're not going to travel to where our meeting is, but now we can travel to them on this digital presence. So yeah, 1900 is a huge number. It really, I mean, for us, it was eye-opening that Number one, we could pull it off with a six-week pivot, but also that there was such an interest. And we're so excited by the potential and the possibility that this opens up for us. And again, it doesn't change the fact that we will continue to do in-person because there's so such enormous value in that networking um, that takes place in person. But now we know there's, there's a product that we can get out into the field um, in those smaller areas and in, in smaller populated areas where there's one or two therapists that could really get value from what we do. Right. Let me ask you about one other project that you've somehow managed to pull off here in the last couple of weeks in addition to your, your conference and, and the merger. You made an announcement about a new wheelchair football league, which yeah. was an announcement I know you were planning to make at the NFL draft uh, had that taken place in Las Vegas, but you went forward with it anyway. Tell me a little bit about what that project is and what cities you're going to be in for that new league. Uh, we couldn't be more excited about this. Um, through our partnership with the Bob Woodruff Woodruff Foundation and their partnership with the NFL. Um, we've been working with the NFL over the past year to launch a new wheelchair football league and really to reinvent the sport. There's been some versions of it over the last couple of decades, but we will launch in four of the NFL markets, Los Angeles, Phoenix, Kansas City, and Chicago this year, the first uh, league play. And we're looking to expand that by another three or four markets in 2021. But to be able to 
offer to the public a brand new opportunity to compete, a brand new opportunity to see our wheelchair athletes um, really taking it to the field of play. And it's going to be a, a good amount of physicality to the game. Um, they will be wearing helmets. The chairs are designed uh, in much the same way that the uh, wheelchair rugby chairs are to take those side hits and to protect the legs from the front hits. I think what people will see come this coming fall, assuming we can launch in October with everything else that's going on in the world. But I think what you, people will see is something that's really interesting to watch and engaging. And the field of play is just... Um, it's wide open. It's not a basketball court. It's a little bit larger than that. It allows for a lot of action passing, a lot of quick breakaways. And with seven on seven play, it'll be, um, I think, really good balance of physicality and still the openness to kind of move and, and sprint around. Is it based on like flag football or are they tackling each other? Uh, no, it'll be it'll be impact, so it won't be flag. Tackle is probably too strong a word. Uh, we've tried to avoid people toppling each other's chairs over, yeah. although um, I think that could still be a, a possibility. I think for those that have seen wheelchair rugby in the past, it will give you a, kind of a sense of what we're aiming for here, where there is some banging. And in wheelchair basketball, has a good amount of physicality to it mm-hmm. as well. as We have very talented athletes and they have a very robust sense of self and they're going to be put themselves out there just like any athlete would. And so I think you're going to see a lot of, um, a lot of activity on the field of play. It's not going to be tag. It's not going to be something that's just touch football. So I think it's going to be a pretty, um, pretty engaging to watch. All right. Well, in the time we have left here, Glenn, we've talked about the the Paralympics and obviously Los Angeles will be hosting in 2028 here in the United States. Let's close a little bit with looking ahead, I guess, what those opportunities look like. I know when the Paralympics were hosted in London in particular in 2012, I know that's largely been credited with boosting awareness of, of Paralympic sports and, and adaptive sports in that country. What are your expectations for the movement here in the United States as we ramp up toward the profile that you're going to get out of the games in Los Angeles? My expectation probably exceeds what takes place on the playing field and the attention to sport. I was at the London 2012 games as well as Beijing in 2008, and both of them had a remarkable impact on uh, the populations within those home countries. From the standpoint of it challenged the people's conception of what's possible, uh, whether you're an amputee or a blind athlete, whether you're in a wheelchair or not, it challenges what people see as the norm. That's the power of sport. And so we're looking at 2028 as that inflection point to change American population, to change American culture around what's possible and what their expectations can be, both within our community of ourselves and using sport as that tool to change trajectory of lives um, so that people recognize, "Ah, I can do this, I can get a job, I can do whatever I set my mind to. Or the outside community that they're like, there is no barrier to participation. With adaptation, we can accomplish anything in sport. It's the same in the workplace. It's the same in the market. We shouldn't be celebrating people just because they're able to do some everyday normal task. We should be looking at people with disabilities as a full-fledged part of community and that it's engaged. And when people do something inspirational, that's truly inspirational, like climbing a mountain or having the world's best time in something, then let's celebrate that. But let's not celebrate people 
or just going around their normal day-to-day activities. We haven't really talked about this, but you were head for a long time of U.S. rowing and you were in the Olympic space. I know the Paralympic movement is just one aspect of what you're doing at Move United, but is it kind of exciting to still kind of be in that world in this in this new role that you have? Uh, it's very interesting. I would say um, this is very different. We're tangential to the Olympic and Paralympic movement. We're a multi-sport organization. And as I would describe it to others is we're an entity that is the wide end of the funnel when it comes to sports. And um, U.S. Paralympics and the national governing bodies that run the selections and own the Paralympic teams for that kind of tenth of a percentage of athletes that that go on to to that greatest uh, spectacle of the Paralympic Games, that that's a nice end piece to the funnel. But we're at the wide open end. And my goal and our organization's goal is to really use sport to give people life lessons. And in our particular community, it's to really engage people to recognize uh, what their potential is and that um, they can push past that and learn what their new potential is. So while I, I really had a fantastic career with Olympic and Paralympic rowing, this to me is much more about a social uh, movement to really change uh, people's trajectory and using sport is such a powerful tool, whether it's um, whether it has to do with civil rights movement, whether it has to do with the disability rights movement. I think there's a lot of power in sport and it oftentimes actually does even the playing field. So that's what I'm most excited about. Well, I can't think of a more perfect way to end the conversation than on that note. So, Glenn, I appreciate you taking the time out to talk with us. Congratulations on everything on the rebrand. I think it's a very exciting time, obviously, um, for these athletes and the communities that you serve. And as we just talked about, the uh, the lead up here to Los Angeles in 28 would seem to me to have just enormous potential uh, for your organization and for cities and venues out there as well to get involved in ways that they haven't uh, in the past. So, congratulations. Congratulations to you, and uh, let's keep the conversation going as we proceed along here over the next couple of years. Well, thank you. I really appreciate uh, chatting with you today, Jason, and um, we think there's great things ahead, and um, we're just at the beginning of this tipping point, so it's my job to just keep pushing until it topples forward, so we're looking forward to it. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which also features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Jason Gewertz for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening. <laughs>